If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Thessalonians, and we are going to be in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. And the title of this sermon is A Gospel Church. Well, throughout our study of 1 Thessalonians, we've seen some glorious moments. Uh, We saw how the gospel came into a city, transformed lives, and then reverberated all across an entire region. We saw gospel boldness, gentleness, hard work for the sake of the gospel. We saw calls to holiness and gospel imitation, even amidst persecution. We saw aspects of God's will spelled out with crystal clarity and a call to live out the gospel where we work. Further, we saw a call to encouraging eschatology and a hopeful longing for Christ's return. That's a pretty full letter. So, how do you end a letter like that? That's what we'll see in today's text. Paul decides to end this letter by explaining what a gospel church looks like in practice. Individual conversion is amazing and is a true work of God. When someone is brought out of death and into life, it's an amazing miracle every single time. But how does that continue generation after generation until Jesus comes back? How does that grow and flourish without Paul, Silas, and Timothy actually there? Well, the answer to that is the local church. Outposts of the kingdom with gospel cultures. That's where Paul ends this letter, explaining what a gospel church looks like in a bare-bones way. When all other things are stripped away, What should we see in a gospel church? Let's dive into the text. And as we begin to read, I want you to notice how many times he uses the word brothers. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. This is the word of the Lord. And we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, 
He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I point out Paul's use of the word brothers for two specific reasons. And his use of brothers, by the way, would also include women here. He's not just speaking to the men of the church. But first, the ending to this letter is very clearly written to the brothers and sisters, the church. That's the context. In fact, all of the yous in this section are actually y'alls. They're plural. He's speaking to the church as a whole, more than just to individual Christians. That's the context. Second, I want us just to consider who Paul is. He's as Jewish as it gets. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Do you see how sweet it is that he's calling these formerly pagan Gentile Christians brothers? This is what the gospel does. It takes people who have nothing in common economically, racially, religiously. And it brings them together in one family to be brothers. That's the church of God, brought together by the gospel. Okay, within that context, I believe that Paul writes to the little church that could to explain three important truths. Number one, the responsibilities of and to pastors, two, the responsibilities of church members to one another, and then three, our responsibilities in worship. So point one, the responsibilities of and then two pastors. Look with me starting in verses 12 and 13. He writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. First, let's look at the responsibilities of pastors in the local church. Uh, while this is written to the local church, Paul wants them as the local church to know the general characteristics of what pastors do. Remember, this is one of the first New Testament letters ever written. Paul's going to go on in other letters to spell out the offices of elders and deacons. He's going to give out extensive lists of the qualifications for both offices. But here, he's giving a general overview. This is what pastors do. Look at the verbs here. Labor among, are over you, and admonish you. What's he saying? Let's take them one at a time. First, labor. The, the word that Paul uses here means toil, to be tired, or to grow weary. Pastors have the responsibility to work hard. In some churches, the pastorate can unfortunately be a place for lazy men to hide. But that's not faithfulness, according to Paul. Look what he tells his young disciple Timothy about work. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. 
He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer. These are all things that take hard work, labor, disciplined toil. So first and foremost, that's what a pastor does. He works hard. When you're looking for a pastor, you're not looking for someone who's hip or cool or relevant. You're looking for someone who works hard, who has a strong work ethic. Calvin writes, From this it follows that all idle bellies are excluded from the number of pastors. That's spot on. But I want you to notice the words next to this verb. Those who labor among you. I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's vital that a shepherd smell like sheep. (laughs) A pastor doesn't just have the responsibility to work hard. He has the responsibility of laboring among you. It's good and right for a pastor to labor hard in the study. We'll get to that momentarily in the text. But a pastor who only spends time in the study, isn't a real pastor. A real pastor labors among you. Pastors collectively, the elders of a church, should know what's going on in the lives of the flock. They should be meeting with sheep regularly and involved in their lives. The point is, they're not separate from the flock. They labor among you. Let's keep going. Second, Pastors are, quote, over you in the Lord, the text says. Over you in the Lord. This isn't about an org chart or any sort of domineering position. In fact, look what Peter writes to the elders. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you. There it is, among you again. You see that? I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And here it is, verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Being over you, means exercising leadership. And the word Paul uses in our text is the word prahistemi, and it means to manage. It's the same word that he uses in 1 Timothy 3, when he says that an elder must manage his own household. So the picture isn't one of harsh authoritarianism, but instead of humble and caring authority, like that of a father. 
A pastor leads and guides with care, love, and sacrifice for the flock. And again, I want to point us to the words that follow. Paul writes, over you in the Lord. Over you in the Lord. Very important. A pastor's authority isn't absolute. Instead, it's derivative. It's derived from the Lord and from God's word. Further, the pastor himself is under the authority and accountability of the Lord. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Important part here, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Every single pastor will one day give an account to God for how they shepherded the souls of church members. They may be accountable to congregation or or to a denomination, but ultimately they're accountable to God himself. Very important. So, pastors work hard. They shepherd with care. And then third, pastors, the text says, admonish you. Admonish you. While this word admonish certainly does include correction, it's actually a lot more broad than that. It's a word that means to instruct or advise. And it literally means to put into mind. Pastors are called to take the word of God and to put it in your mind regularly, specifically the gospel. Because all of us are so forgetful, we, myself included, need to be reminded. That's what a pastor does. He labors in God's word. He works hard in the study. He spends time among the people. He cares for them and leads them with God's word, putting it in your minds. For a church to be healthy, it requires a pastor like that. And that's what Paul's teaching them at a very early stage here. And what's the other side of that? What are the responsibilities to pastors? Look again at verses 12 and 13. He says, respect, and then esteem them, in love. Why? Because of their work. Because of their work. This isn't a command to blind exaltation. We're not called to worship pastors or to make them celebrities. On the other hand, it is a command against despising pastors. Look, unfortunately, I get it. There are a lot of guys out there who have defamed the office of pastor. They've either been lazy, authoritarian, or wickedly sinful in some way. And because of this, our culture has leaned towards despising the office of pastor and of authority in general. Paul's telling us that this is unhealthy. In a healthy church, Pastors work hard, they care for the flock, and they faithfully teach God's word. 
Then they're respected and esteemed in love for their work. There's real affection there. Not just grudging submission, but esteem them very highly in love. And look at the end of verse 13. Paul writes, be at peace among yourselves. When there's, there's not this adversarial relationship between church members and pastors, and instead there's hard work and respect, it leads to internal peace within the body of Christ. And let me tell you, when this culture is present, it's actually evangelistic when there's peace inside the church. It's good for the world to see a church at peace and not for them to see constantly internal battles. Who would want to be a part of that? I love what the ESV commentary says here. He writes, Church harmony results from mutual humility combined with a unified focus on Christ. That's right. When a pastor is focused on Christ and walking in humility, he works hard, he cares for the flock, he teaches God's word relentlessly. When a congregation is focused on Christ and walking in humility, they respect and esteem and love. Notice that the focus isn't on the pastor or the congregation there. It's on Christ. And the fruit that gets produced is peace. And peace doesn't just happen. We have to work for this. We have to cultivate it. That's why our church covenant says, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We covenant to that regularly as brothers and sisters. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So my challenge to us is to do exactly this, to commit to one another, to pray for this culture, and to work toward this culture as a church. It's part of what it means to be a healthy gospel church. Let's keep going. Point two, the responsibilities of church members to one another. Look at verse 14. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Once again, I'll remind us that the yous here are y'alls. They're plural. This isn't a command given to the pastors, but to the church as a whole. In other words, if you're a church member, this is your responsibility. It's not just for the professionals. So what does Paul say? Number one, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. And idle here doesn't necessarily mean lazy. But in the context of both letters to this church, it does seem that it has to do with those who are refusing to work. That being said, the word itself, translated idle, is a military term, which means not in battle order, disorderly, or undisciplined. Paul tells us as church members that we're to admonish the idle or the undisciplined. 
It means to warn by way of instruction. It's actually the same word that was used in verse 12. In other words, church members are called to take God's word and to put it in the mind of the undisciplined, disorderly person. They're called, they're they're to call this person to live in line with God's word. Admonish the idol. Second, Paul writes, encourage the faint-hearted. The word for faint-hearted means small of soul or discouraged. There are so many things that can lead to discouragement in this world, right? For the Thessalonians, it was persecution, death of loved ones, false teaching and confusion around Christ's coming. But it might be something completely different for you this morning. And I want us to notice that Paul doesn't say that we're to admonish this person, like he did with the idol. No, this person doesn't need admonishment. They need encouragement. They don't need someone in their face. They need gentleness and a reminder of God's goodness, his grace. Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. So I'll ask you this question this morning. How can you encourage someone's faith this week? How can you encourage someone's faith this week? Third, Paul says, help the weak. Help the weak. Now, this could mean the weak of conscience, the spiritually weak, those who are ill, or those who are generally considered weak by our culture. In some way or other, this category of person is lowly. Paul says that we should help them. If you look around and you see someone in your church who obviously needs help, help them. They they don't need admonishment. They don't need encouragement. They need help. You see what Paul's saying here. This isn't a one-size-fits-all. He's saying, know who's in front of you. Further, this entails actually knowing the people in your church. How can you know who's weak or who's small of soul or who's idle unless you're actually invested in their lives? You can't. This is why healthy church life is so much more than just the one hour a week that we spend together here on Sunday. It's not less than gathering together on the Lord's Day. It is that, but it's much more. And this is where small groups come into play. You might not be able to know everyone in this room and what's going on in their life, but you can know the people in your small group. What's going on in their lives? How can you be praying for them? Which one of these commands is the remedy for them? And by the way, Diving into this kind of ministry to one another, it's going to be hard. That's why Paul says at the end, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. To admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, you're going to need some patience. People don't always react well to admonishment. Encouragement doesn't immediately make someone undiscouraged. Help 
isn't always received with gratitude. Be patient with them all, brothers and sisters. In fact, to be impatient is to be unloving. Why would I say that? Well, because God's word says that. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Therefore, to be impatient is to be unloving. Paul says, be patient with them all. Then, Paul writes in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the responsibility of church members. No retaliation. I'm going to read an extended text, Romans 12, 17 through 21. Paul expands on this idea. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see that? When someone is evil toward you, you don't respond with evil. You trust God. But in our passage, it's actually more than just a passive absorption of evil with no response. Look what Paul says in our text. He says, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Seeking to do good to one another. In Mark Dever's book titled Discipling, he defines discipleship this way. He says discipleship is helping others to follow Jesus. And then he says another way we could define discipling might be discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Deliberately doing spiritual good so that he or she will be more like Christ. You see what Paul's calling us to do in this text? He's saying, don't have an eye toward revenge. Instead, have an eye towards discipleship. How can you help this person grow to be more like Christ? So I'll ask you this morning, how can you do spiritual good to someone this week so that they'll be more like Christ? Challenge each and every one of us to write that question down. How can you do spiritual good to someone this week so that they'll be more like Christ? Try to answer that question in a very specific way. Then go and do it. Can you imagine the gospel culture we'd have in the church if we treated one another like this? That's what we're after. That's what we pray for. That's our heart's desire here at Santa Cruz Baptist. That kind of a culture. Then, Paul takes it outside the walls of the church. He says, we're to do good to one another in the church and to everyone. 
What if you not only did good to those inside the church, but those outside as well? Here's the secret. You'll probably never do it out there if you're not also doing it in here. In here is good practice for us. Get to practice on one another in grace and love. Imagine a place where all of the church members did intentional good to one another. And fueled by that, they went out and did good to their neighbors, their co-workers, their family, and their friends. Wouldn't that be a great culture to be a part of? That's the biblical vision of a local church. So, we've seen responsibilities of and to pastors. We've seen the responsibilities of church members to one another. Now, let's take a look at third and finally, our responsibilities in worship. Our responsibilities in worship. I know I'm a broken record here, but one more time, I want to call our attention to the fact that this section is written to the church, the y'alls. This section is probably where this matters most in understanding the context. These commands certainly aren't bad commands for the individual believer, but I'm not so certain that's what's actually going on here. In fact, one early church historian has referenced this text as an example of elements in a worship service. These seem to be public acts of a congregation together, corporately. Look at verses 16 through 22. First, he says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Joy in the life of a church isn't momentary happiness. It's deep and long-lasting sense of well-being and pleasure. There will certainly be times of unhappiness, but a Christian is commanded and a church is commanded to have joy in the Lord and to rejoice. That's why this is always part of Christian worship. Even if we've had a bad week, we gather and we rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in who God is and what he's done. This should define us as a congregation, that we're always rejoicing. Second, pray without ceasing. Again, this isn't an individual command that you should just be praying 24-7. But our worship services, as one commentator put it, should be seasoned with prayer. It should be characterized by prayer. And that, in turn, should be our attitude the rest of the week. People should be able to look at us as a church and say, Man, those guys are always praying. It's a huge part of what they do and who they are. They're a praying church. They're always praying. Third, he says we should give thanks in all circumstances. And this is where trusting in God's providence really comes in. It's easy for us to look at this and to say, really, Paul? Give thanks in all circumstances? Are you serious? Yes, he is. And he's not denying the existence of evil here. Bad things happen that in and of themselves aren't things to be thankful for. 
But when we acknowledge that God's going to do something good through them, we can give thanks, even in the midst of trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or how about the text we all know so well? Romans 8.28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If we believe this to be true, we can give thanks in all circumstances because we know that whatever hardship we're experiencing is part of the all things that God is working together for our good. So he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And are you ready for this? Again, Paul says, that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will isn't hidden from us. It's right out there in plain sight. And again, the only question we have to answer is, are we willing to obey? Paul continues on in verse 19. More commands. He says, do not quench the spirit. To quench something usually refers to putting out a fire. What God's word is telling us here is don't dampen the spirit's work. You can't ultimately extinguish the spirit, but you can resist his work. And I believe that the next three verses are connected to this command. What's one way that we can dampen the spirit's work? Look at verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. What are prophecies? Well, sometimes in scripture, prophecies entail foretelling or speaking something yet to come. But the overwhelming majority of prophecies come from a prophet who's foretelling or saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is what God says. Most of the Puritans, and I, I tend to agree with them on this, they understood prophecy to mean the, the modern-day equivalent of preaching. In the Old Testament, a prophet would receive God's word, and then they would deliver God's word as it was, without tinkering with it or editing it in any way. Well, what's the role and the calling of the preacher? As we've learned in our preaching cohort, the role of the preacher is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He stands up and he says, this is God's word to and for you. Do you know a really good way to quench the spirit? To despise God's word preached to you, which the spirit himself inspired. But there's another side to this, right? Preachers today, unlike Old Testament prophets or the authors of scripture, preachers can err. The authors of scripture never err, but fallible pastors can and do. So what does Paul write next? Verse 21, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. In other words, 
be a Berean. What do I mean by that? Acts 17, verses 10 through 11. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They're excited about receiving the word of God. But then what did they do with it? Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So while you shouldn't despise preaching, you should test it. Just like the Bereans, I want you guys to always have your Bibles open, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Another way to dampen the Spirit's work is to believe everything that you're told and to never examine the scriptures. But once you've examined the scriptures, what does he say? You hold fast to what is good. Cling to it. Treasure it in your hearts and your minds. Rejoice in the truth. I want us to remember that the Thessalonians had false prophets writing them letters claiming to be from Paul at this time. So it might have been tempting for them to do one or both of these things. On one side, they could have despised prophecy and teaching. On the other side, they could have believed anything that was written to them. Paul says that both of these are unhealthy. They're spirit-quenching ditches. Third, he says abstain from every form of evil. A third way to quench the spirit is to live an unholy life. Remember, he's called the Holy Spirit. When we live lives of evil, we work against what the Spirit's trying to accomplish. How do I know that? Again, God's word says it. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Understand that, that the quenching the Spirit has little to do with a particular type of worship music or some kind of ecstatic experience. Paul connects quenching the spirit to right reception of God's word and to a life of holiness. Now, I believe that verses 23 and 24 are the keys to this entire section and sermon. So if you've tuned out, tune back in. Hear this. Verses 23 and 24, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In other words, in order to do all of the things that we've just talked about, it has to be God doing it. Pastors being self-controlled, enough to work hard. Church members loving their pastor. Peace in the congregation. Patience with others. Kindness in doing good or helping. Joy in worship. Faithfulness in the Christian life. Who produces that kind of fruit? 
the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see the connection here? Instead of quenching the Spirit's work, we allow Him to sanctify us. We allow Him to do work in us and to produce fruit through us. None of this happens without God doing it. It's all Spirit-produced. God is faithful. And He's the only one who can make us faithful. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to know this. Christians don't claim to be sinless or perfect in any way. It's the exact opposite. We know, because the Bible tells us, that we're all sinners. We've all rebelled against God, the creator of the universe. We know that we all deserve death and wrath because of our sin. But we also know that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He went to the cross to die in our place and to take the penalty that we deserve. He died, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later to defeat sin, Satan, and death itself once and for all. And if you put your trust in Christ and turn from sin, you'll be saved. Not because you're good enough, but because Jesus was good enough for you. That's the gospel. And we believe that the true gospel changes the culture of a church. And that begins by reflecting God's love and his character to the world. If you've never given your life to Christ and you'd like to, I would love to talk to you after the service. Finally, and in closing, I can't help but see that all of this, all of it, assumes connection to a local church. Paul writes to these Christians as y'alls. He's assuming rightly that they're in community together, under leaders, doing life and worshiping together. He's assuming that they're meaningfully connected to a local church. If you're a Christian, we believe you should be too. If that's here at Santa Cruz Baptist, we'd love that. But if this isn't a good fit for you, We'd love to help you get connected to another church in town that believes and preaches the gospel. My encouragement to you is, don't float. Plug in somewhere. Be meaningfully connected to the body, living out these commands that Paul just gave us. We understand that to be membership. And if you'd like to know more about that at Santa Cruz Baptist, again, we'd love to chat with you. Come find Rob. Come find me. We'd love to talk you through that. Here's the deal at the end of the day. We need each other. There are moments in this Christian life when all of us need to be admonished. There are times when we need to be encouraged. And other times we need to be helped. The local church is where this all happens. So-called Lone Ranger Christians are missing out. If you're a Christian and you're completely isolated from the local church, it'd be very hard to obey these commands. The local church 
is God's greenhouse for growth. This is where gospel culture flourishes, a gospel church. Let's pray.